following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church tonight. Glad that you're with us here and abroad, so to speak, uh, far off. Tonight we're reading in a lengthy chapter in First Chronicles. If you'd turn there. We're in chapter 6. We're going to have to persevere with this one, okay? The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, or Hebron, and Oziel. The children of Amram were Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. And the sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Eleazar begat Phinehas, and Phinehas begat Abishua. Abishua begat Buki, and Buki begat Uzi. Uzi begat Zerahiah and Zerahiah begot Mariot. Mariot begot Amariah and Amariah begot Ahitub. Ahitub begot Zadok and Zadok begot Achamaz. Achamaz begot Azariah and Azariah begot Johanan. Johanan begot Azariah. It was he who ministered as priest in the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. Just note what a privilege that would have been to be the first high priest ministering in that new facility. Azariah begot Amariah, and Amariah begot Ahitub. Ahitub begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Shalom. Shalom begot Hilkiah, and Hilkiah begot Azariah. Azariah begot Sariah, and Sariah begot Jehazadak. Jehazadak went into captivity when the Lord carried Judah and Jerusalem into captivity by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Now that'll sound familiar to you because that is like verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Gershon. Okay, now we're going to another branch of the, uh, of the uh, family tree. Gershon, Libni, and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The sons of Merari were Mahliel and Mushi. Now these are the families of the Levites according to their fathers. Of Gershon were Libni, his son, Jahath, his son, Zimah, his son, Joah, his son, Ido, his son, Zerah, his son, and Jeathai, sorry, Jeathari, his son. The sons of Kohath were Aminadab, his son, Korah, his son, Asir, his son. Verse 23, Elkanah, his son, Abiasaph, his son, Asir, his son, Tehath, his son, Uriel, his son, Uzziah, his son, and Shaul, his son. The sons of Elkanah were Amasai and Echemot. As for Elkanah, the sons of Elkanah were Zophai, his son, Nahath, his son, Eliab, his son, Jeroham, his son, and Elkanah, his son. Sons of Samuel were Joel, the firstborn, and Abijah, the second. The sons of Merari were Mahil, Libni, his son, Shimei, his son, Uzzah, or Uzzah, his son, Shemiah, his son, Haggiah, his son, and Asiah, his son. Verse 31, now these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest, First Chronicles 6.32 they were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they served in their office according to their order. And these are the ones who ministered with their sons. Of the sons of the Kohathites were Heman the singer, and uh, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, the son of Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Eliel, the son of Toah, the son of Zuth, the son of Elkanah, the son of Mahath, the son of Amasai, the son of Elkanah, the son of Joel, the son of Azariah, the son of Zephaniah, the son of Tehath, the son of Asir, the son of Ebiasaph, the son of Korah, the son of Esar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the son of Israel. And his brother Asaph, who stood at his right hand, was Asaph, the son of Barakiah, the son of Shimeah, the son of Michael, the son of Basiah, the son of Malchijah, the son of Ethni, the son of Zerah, the son of Adiah, the son of Ethan, the son of Zimah, the son of Shimei, the son of Jahath, the son of Gershon, the son of Levi. Their brethren, the sons of Merari, on the left hand were Ethan, the son of Kishi, the son of Abdi, the son of Maluk, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Amaziah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Amzi, the son of Bani, the son of Shemer, the son of Mahil, the son of Mushi, the son of Merari, the son of Levi. And their brethren, the Levites, were appointed to every kind of service of the tabernacle of the house of God. But Aaron and his sons offered sacrifices on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place to make, and to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. Now these are the sons of Aaron. 
Eleazar, his son, Phinehas, his son, Abishua, his son, Buki, his son, Uzi, his son, Zerahiah, his son, Mariot, his son, Amariah, his son, Ahitub, his son, Zadok, his son, and Achamaz, his son. Now, these are their dwelling places throughout their settlements in their territory, for they were given by lot to the sons of Aaron of the family of the Kohathites. Verse 55, 1 Chronicles 6. They gave them Hebron and the land of Judah with its surrounding common lands. But the fields of the city and its villages they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. And to the sons of Aaron they gave one of the cities of refuge, Hebron, also Libna with its common lands, Jatir, Eshtemoah with its common lands, Hillen with its common lands, Debir with its common lands, Ashan with its common lands, and Beth Shemesh with its common lands. And from the tribe of Benjamin, Geba with its common lands, uh, Elemeth with its common lands, and Anathoth with its common lands. All their cities among their families were 13. To the rest of the family of the tribe of the Kohathites, they gave by lot 10 cities from the half-tribe of Manasseh. And to the sons of Gershon, throughout their families, they gave 13 cities from the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, and from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the tribe of Manasseh and Bashan. To the sons of Merari, throughout their families, they gave 12 cities from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, and from the tribe of Zebulun. So the children of Israel gave these cities with their common lands to the Levites. And they gave by lot from the tribes, sorry, from the tribe of the children of Judah, from the tribe of the children of Simeon, and from the tribe of the children of Benjamin, these cities which are called by their names. Now some of the families of the sons of Kohath were given cities as their territory from the tribe of Ephraim. And they gave them one of the cities of refuge, Shechem, with its common lands, and the mountains of Ephraim, also Gezer, with its common lands. Jachmiam with its common lands, Beth Horon with its common lands, Ijalon with its common lands, and Gath Rimon with its common lands. And from the half tribe of Manasseh, Aner with its common lands, and uh, Biliam with its common lands for the rest of the family of the sons of Kohath. From the family of the half tribe of Manasseh, the sons of Gershon were given Golan and Bashan with its common lands, and Ashtarot with its common lands. And from the tribe of Issachar, Kedesh with its common lands, uh, Deberoth with its common lands, Ramoth with its common lands, and Anim with its common lands. From the tribe of Asher, Mashal with its common lands, Abdon with its common lands, Hukok with its common lands, and Rehob with its common lands. From the tribe of Naphtali, Kedesh and Galilee with its common lands, Hamon with its common lands, and Kiriath Jerim with its common lands. Verse 77, from the tribe of Zebulun, the rest of the children of Merari were given Rimon with its common lands and Tabor with its common lands. And on the other side of the Jordan, across from Jericho, on the east side of the Jordan, they were given from the tribe of Reuben, Bezer in the wilderness with its common lands, Jaza with its common lands, Kedemot with its common lands, and Mepha'ath with its common lands. And from the tribe of Gad, Ramoth and Gilead with its common lands, Machanayim with its common lands, Heshbon with its common lands, and Jazer with its common lands. First Chronicles chapter 6. How would you like to read that, Jackson? Not really? You'll pass on that one? Okay, all right. We'll give you a few years to get up on your Hebrew pronunciation, and then you can do that again sometime. All right. I offered a Bible Q&A time for you this evening. I wanted to comment on two questions that I received um, somewhat indirectly perhaps, uh, not exactly or precisely intended for this meeting, but I have made them for that. And then I think we have at least one other question, so let me uh, dig into those. One, the first question I had to do, uh, ha- received has to do with the doctrine of forgiveness, the doctrine of forgiveness. And I'm talking about the doctrine of forgiveness as Christianity teaches it from person to person, not from God to man. We're well familiar with that. And uh, God, uh, obviously there was a big problem with our sin, and God was very, um, oh, uh, we can say, full of wrath against our sin. But he doesn't have the shortcoming that we have, that once we forgive, we often have a struggle to maintain that mindset, um, that situation in our, in our hearts. Uh, the, the issues keep coming up. We really, it, it's hard when there's been a painful Thing that has been done uh, for us to uh, really implement forgiveness. 
And so the question is, how do I know if I have really forgiven somebody? How do I? And, and when the, the issue comes up over which the whole matter of forgiveness was, I'm not talking about a, a little thing. I'm talking about a major sin, okay? Something really consequential that was done in, in your life. And you know the verses like Ephesians 4.32 that we're supposed to be kind and tenderhearted toward one another, forgiving one another even as God in Christ's sake, for Christ's sake, forgave us. And the same in Colossians 3.13, the same exact idea. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, which we spent some time on in the Lord's uh, Sermon on the Mount, in which he said, you know, if you forgive men their trespasses, God will forgive you. But if you don't, then God will not forgive you. And we spent some time thinking about that. But I thought that I would uh, just hunt around and, and gather a few suggestions about how would you know if you are really forgiving the person who has wronged you. And here are some kind of practical uh, uh, steps, if you will, or practical thoughts. Would you, first of all, would you help that person if they had a need? Would you help that person if they had a need? If the answer is no, you know, why would you treat them with a special no if you would treat everybody else with a yes? That would indicate that you have not exercised really forgiveness toward that person. Are you with me? Just a little practical test. When you think, secondly, when you think of that person, is your first thought about what they did to you or uh, revenge for what they have done? Or do you think good thoughts about them? That would be an acid test, if you will, a litmus test for your forgiveness. Number three, are you hoping that they will fail or be found to be in more sin? Are you hoping that for that person? If, if so, that would be an indication that you're not forgiving them. Are you keeping a record of their wrongs? You know, to add on to the wrong that they did to you before, whatever that is. Are you keeping a record of that? Number five, are you directing forgiveness toward all the parties involved in the situation or just some of them? Maybe it's a complex situation that involves two or three or four or more people. And uh, are you forgiving toward one or two of those people or are you, uh, are you treating them equally or not? And you can, you'll have to answer that for yourself. You know, lack of forgiveness is a real scourge. I'll just stop and mention. It's all over the place. There are people harboring bitterness in their hearts, even right now, and it may be some in our own midst that are doing that. And all that does is eat away. It destroys relationships. It really hurts people themselves who are holding these grudges and not forgiving. And uh, it restrains the progress that can be made in terms of uh, relations and and work in the church, and so on, uh, and in the world as well. Uh, here's another one. Are you faking forgiveness just to get by? Just to get by. Well, it's, it's okay, you know. Forget it. doesn't phase me, you know. I don't want to talk about it, though. <laughs> you know, there's a, a feeling there that something's not quite right. Uh, number seven, are you able to reference the event that occurred without being consumed by it or by revenge or hatred for the person who worked that upon you? Um, are you able to reference the event, or does it become all-consuming? Now, those are just some tests. What about things that are not included? Uh, one thing that is not included in this is the matter of consequences. Somebody may have done something to you, and that causes or done something to anybody at home or in the church or wherever, business, and that causes consequences. And it could be legal consequences, it could be restitution consequences, it could be boundaries that you have to set up to protect or whatever. It could be accountability consequences that are set up to, you know, may not be prudent to be nearby or around those people if they have done or continue to do harmful activity. Um, Certainly, if they have not extended confession and apology for that, you're not actually going to be able to complete a transaction of forgiveness with them. Your heart might be rightly, um, you know, have a right demeanor toward them, might be rightly aligned toward God and 
ready to forgive, but if they have not uh, moved toward you in confession and apology, then it's going to be <clears throat> impossible to actually have a full transaction of forgiveness. So there are things that are included or not included in, in testing your forgiveness that just have to you know, occur. Um, you might even be upset about the event that occurred and the damage that it did to you without being upset per, you know, per se at the person who did it if you've forgiven them. You know, you've forgiven them, but you know, still your retirement disappeared. And you know, Bernie Madoff, for example, and you have consequences. You bear consequences for their sin against you even though you may not be holding it against that person. I mean, you may recognize, like I said this morning, you know, you're dealing with people who, you know, in politics and on the street who are blind, deaf, dead sinners. And you can't expect them to act anything other than that. And so you may even have a level of compassion upon that person who did you wrong because you if you develop that over a course of time, praying and asking God's help to do that, you may have a sense of that compassion towards the person, but you know what? That doesn't change the harsh, maybe, realities that have come to you as a result of their activity and what they did. So these are just a few thoughts as to are you really forgiving towards somebody who has done wrong to you. Maybe you can apply this in your marriage, in your parent-child relationships, in your extended families. It's strange how many extended families have uh, the no talking to each other syndrome. You know, we're just not talking. Oh, you know, that's that's not a good sign. Um, You know, at least be civilized with one another, I call it. Uh, Not supposed to say that word today, am I? Yeah, well, I just said it anyway. Um, you know, be uh, be kind, be professional at least, I often, um, you know, say to people. Uh, so those are some thoughts on forgiveness. Let me uh, set that aside for the moment. And let me deal with another issue that is, uh, came to my attention actually this afternoon twice uh, in... Uh, a broad communication and also a personal communication. And the question uh, is is this. Um, Somebody uh, was reflecting on the Vietnam era, of which I spoke earlier. And the people, uh, the, the, the men particularly, I'll say men, although I know there were some women involved in that, but it's, the military was much differently uh, con- constituted back in those days than it is today. Uh, the men who were involved in that conflict when they came home, I'm talk- talking about soldiers, how were they treated? We recognize they were treated very horribly. Uh, this particular fellow that I know is saying that uh, our, um, our type are known as baby killers and uh, evil people for what was done. And this person carries a lot of guilt because of that association. Uh, So much so that it has caused a deep uh, scar that goes right to the heart of the matter of, can I even be a saved person after perhaps being involved in activities that resulted in the death of young people. Um, You know, this is really where the rubber meets the road, doesn't it? Yeah, and that that was was one question. And then I received, uh, I had heard of this, but a a letter from an Afghan veteran who penned this letter about what it's like to come home from combat. A lot of people he says, don't understand what it's like coming home from combat after doing things for your country. And I'm sure doing things for your country is loaded with all kinds of difficult matters. We have to live with what we've done. 
I feel I forfeited any chance to see my daughters in the afterlife. When, well, I won't go, I won't, I won't read that. That's uh, it's not good. Um, it was like the Wild West. Your enemy changes you. You grow a hate inside you that you can't come to terms with. You watch your Marines die. You watch them get maimed, losing legs and arms and other parts of their body, all while knowing that the local people knew where the explosives and ambushes were but didn't tell you. Usually those IEDs were 15 or 20 pounders, which would take out a limb or an arm or perhaps two. The worst was a 50-7 pounder that turned you into a pink mist. They had to deal with the aftermath of that. And those that were in shock because of it, you hate yourself because you lived. You hate yourself because your Marine killed himself when we got home and you couldn't prevent it. You hate yourself because you get drunken texts from your Marines telling you they love you and thanking you for what you did for them over there. But they're hurting because you had to give them orders to kill even the kids. You have to carry that hate for the rest of your life. It doesn't go away. It's actually gotten worse. You have nightmares almost every night. You hardly sleep. Terrible things happen in your dreams. I uh, paraphrase that. You fear that those dreams are the punishment for what you did and that they may in fact come true. But America doesn't care now. You're a statistic at best. You're hated at worst. So what can we offer to folks who are in this circumstance? Does, does Christ have anything to offer these people, Brother Thurman? What do you tell somebody who says, I don't know that I can be saved after that? Here's a brother who's been in the military service, and he says, of course you can be saved. And uh, I heartily, heartily agree with that sentiment. The Lord Jesus Christ died to save sinners. He did not die to save saints. Yeah, there, there are none apart from his work to create them afresh out of a sinful, sin-cursed humanity. So you don't have to say, I hope the Lord lets me in to heaven. You can know for 100% certainty that you are saved if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God saved people like King David. He saved people like the Apostle Paul. He saved many a wretch throughout history. And I'll use that term as far as oh, the worst kinds of sinners. But we're all sinners. We've all had sin that disqualifies us from entering into those pearly gates. But the Bible tells us that salvation is so magnanimous, so broad in scope, so available, so powerful that it can save even the most wicked of people. Let me uh, share with you also in Deuteronomy chapter 20 that sometimes even the Lord made orders for war that were very, to the modern ear, very extreme. And I just happened to be reading a few days ago and recalled this in Deuteronomy chapter 20, where the Lord talks about uh, fighting against cities that are far off from Israel. But then he talks about the uh, people or the cities of the peoples which the Lord God gives you as an inheritance. So the nearby cities, those in your borders of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? Lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. Those cities were called Cherem, or under the ban. 
And that meant that everything in the city had to be utterly destroyed. Nothing was to be left alive. Nothing was to be taken as spoils. It was all to be destroyed. Now, there were various levels of this. Was, you know, some was everything. Sometimes they could take the inanimate spoils or sometimes the animate spoils but not let the people stay alive and various gradations of it depending on the particular situation. But even God, my point is to say, even God sometimes commanded the extinguishing of all life in a community so that it would be done and gone away. Now, the modern sensibility is that that is evil, except that the modern sensibility doesn't recognize because of its ignorance the evil that God was punishing in them. What they did was, you know, things like, I always bring this example up, offering their children in sacrifice to idols. A society that was so shot through with that mindset, nothing could be really done with it except for it to be extinguished for the people of Israel to have a peaceful existence in their land. Now, I'm comfortable with that analysis because I trust God. I believe in Him, and He knows what is right and best to be done. Those instructions, of course, don't apply for today, and we don't follow that kind of mentality or methodology in the present day. Nobody should, although some still do in the faraway lands. But we're no better than those people were. We slaughter innocent children all the time, every day in this land, and there's no getting around it. You start out with a living homo sapiens, and by the time you're done, it's a dead homo sapiens. It's murder of a person. And so we need to stop and, uh, how can I say, check our morality at the door, like they say, check your privilege. Check your morality, friends, and realize that you're not so high and mighty as you think you are if you're a pro-abortionist, and then you want to complain about what God did here. You do the very same thing yourself that you complain about, and we're not going to tolerate that kind of hypocrisy and sin in your reasoning or condemnation of our God. We simply are not. So, do you have to fear that God may not allow you in even if you committed, if you committed some terrible atrocity that was ordered by your superiors, what were you to do if you committed some atrocity that was not ordered by your superiors? Is there any sin other than intransigent unbelief that could keep someone out of heaven for sure with no forgiveness? No, there is no such thing. God, through Christ, saves sinners, even the chiefest of sinners. And although we can't give a full a description of how a Christian, how, how the Christian faith would be able to help, uh, say, this man who wrote this letter. Uh, it is indeed the case that coming to faith in Christ can ameliorate many of these difficulties, even if not removing them, can change the psychology from a hopeless, aimless kind of despair into a, a, a Christ-centered hope that will show you that the world will be a better place someday, that the kingdom of Christ will come, that the wrongs that have been done will be righted, that those things which you feel that were wasted, you will find that God had some purpose in them. Even if you think, I'm just a statistic, and I spent the last 20 years of my life in Afghanistan, and it's all gone down the toilet. God still used that in your life, and he may use it yet. And so we commend that to you if you're struggling in that way of thinking. You look to Christ. He will save. He will certainly save and will not cast you out. But if you are, here's the, here's the problem, just abstracting back for a second. If you're saying, I hope that I'm going to be okay, then you need to tune up your understanding of what the gospel is. It's not a wish. It's not a far-fetched possibility. It is a true, actual, factual uh, opening of the doors of heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. And to say, I hope, might indicate, analyze yourself, might indicate that you really are thinking that it's what you do 
or don't do that gets you into heaven. But what's the reality? It's not, not what you do or don't do that gets you into heaven. It's what Christ has done that gets you into heaven. What is the basis of my salvation? It's not my good works. It's not even my faith. Many, many people answer that question. That's a diagnostic question that I use. How do you know? What's the basis of your salvation? They'll say, my faith. No, it's not. Your faith is simply a channel to receive the blessings of the real foundation and reason for your faith, and that is one name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved, Jesus the Christ. That's it. He is the foundational reason for your salvation. Yes, we receive him through faith, but it's not the strength of our faith. It's the strength of our Christ. It's the power of his sacrifice that allows us to have confidence and know that we are born again and able to enter into heaven. Despite all that we did, all the guilt that we're associated, we're associated with, all the terrible things that were done, and uh, I, do, I do have a great deal of pain and sympathy in my heart for those who have had to deal with those kinds of things in their lives. I hope you understand that. Uh, I understand these are very difficult things, never having had to do them myself, and I hope not to have to in my lifetime. But God saves any and all kinds. Any and all comers by faith will be saved through Christ. So I leave that subject for now. That's our second Q&A. I have a third question, do I, from anybody here? Yes, sir? Going to the Old Testament, it looks like. Uh-huh. So, uh, my question has to do with the Sabbath. Okay, the Sabbath day. Are we in Exodus chapter 20? We are. All right, Exodus 20, please. Let's start in Exodus chapter 20. <laughs> okay. All right, and so, uh, for the Sabbath, again, King James, it is that the reason meaning is, is that uh, six days shall you labor and do your work, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath of the Lord, one second. John, could you give me a sound on seven, please? It will help the folks that are in the uh, online audience to be able to hear a little bit better. Sure. Good. Okay. Yeah, I think we're good. Uh, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, and the guide that thou shalt not do any work, nor thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor maidservant, and cattle, stranger within thy gates. And here's the reasoning. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments are given again. But the reasoning for the Sabbath is different. Ah, okay. So, let me see here. Um, All right, in in Deuteronomy 5.14. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, and it thou shalt not do thy work, you know, so on and so forth. And then, number 15, and remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore, the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Hmm. So, the Sabbath, when it was first given in Exodus... Uh, said, hey, I created the heavens and the earth, and I rested. Then he brought it more closer to home to the Mm -hmm. Israelites, and remember that you were servants. You did not have a day of rest, but now I've given you a day of rest. Okay. And so, and by reading it, uh, I have a couple of questions. Okay. So, by reading it, so, right, it's all about the rest is the reasoning for the Sabbath. Yes, Sabbath was given for man's rest. Right, which our Lord says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Not man for the Sabbath, that's right. Correct. Um, And we know that in Numbers, a man was killed because he was working on the Sabbath. Right. But more happened on the Sabbath than just rest. Was it the Israelites' day of also worship, or did that happen more than just on the Sabbath? I know that uh, in Mark, I believe it is, I'm sorry, in Luke, where Jesus 
Luke 4, 16 is when Jesus is on the Sabbath and reads Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that there is worship that goes on. There was by the time of the Lord, which is uh, 1,400 years plus or minus after the giving of the Sabbath command. So, so okay. question number one is, was it a day of worship? All right, so it was originally, or by the time Jesus came? Was Certainly by the time Jesus came, but I think from the very beginning, the Sabbath was set aside by God so that people would have time to rest from their work, refresh their physical bodies, and also to spend some time in refreshing their spiritual life. And they were remembering a couple of things on that day. Number one, they were remembering that God created the heavens and the earth and rested from it. And two, they also have been given a rest, the people of God have been given a rest from God, uh, from their labors in Egypt, from their slavery. And so they could remember, as you uh, alluded to from Deuteronomy chapter 5, that they were slaves in the land of Egypt and God brought them out of there. So it's a uh, it's a, it's a holiday, if you will, a weekly holiday in which they were able to focus on God as creator and God as redeemer mm-hmm. from them. Mm-hmm. Now, they should have recognized those things and spent some time in spiritual uh, refreshment and uh, instruction. Levites were charged not specifically with only Sabbath instruction, but generally instructing the nation so that they would stay on the path of, of God's word. Um, but oh, through the course of history, I think you can find little evidences in the Old Testament where they ignored mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in Nehemiah, for example, you have, uh, do you remember that, brother? Were you there recently? Uh, I know you were in Ezra, but uh, the, the folks would come to the city trying to buy and sell on the Sabbath day. And Nehemiah said, no, we're not going to do that. You get out of here. Otherwise, I'll, what did he say? Were those the guys that he was going to pluck the hair out of their beards and beat them over the head or something like that? It's either them or the guys that had taken wives that were illegal for them to take. But in any case, he was pretty stringent with them, not exactly politically correct or, or nicey-nice about it. So they were to observe that, not to work, but to observe God as creator and God as redeemer of them, and that gave them a day of rest. Now, where are we at with your question? Yeah, so, so that is good. So we know that God cares about rest, right? Rest for his people, and then rest for the land uh, for the Jubilee, right? Where you, get in the, where you get the land rest, so you're not constantly working the land, which the Israelites also ignored. Right? They did ignore that, uh, Drew, referring to the Jubilee year, but also there was a, a Sabbath rest every seven years. And then every seven, seven, seven times seven, there was that j- Jubilee year in which there was a year of release. But that allowed not only the land to rest, it allowed the people to have not exactly a full rest because they still would have to gather some for their food, right? But they didn't have to labor in the same way that they did the other six years. And uh, there were laws about servants for up to seven years or six years and being released at the end of that. So, yes, they also violated not only the weekly Sabbaths, but also the I'll call them annual Sabbaths, and God sent them away from their land for how many years? 70 years to make up for the 490 years divided by seven worth of Sabbath years they did not observe properly before God. And why not? Because they probably didn't trust God. Well, if we don't plant this year, God's not going to provide for us, so we've got we to disobey God in order to provide for ourselves. Oh, don't do that. If you have specific instructions from God about something to do, do it. Don't say, I'm going to disobey it so that I can provide for myself because God promised to provide, so I've got to break God's law in order to do that. Never, 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 never. God promised to provide for them and to protect them. Okay? Yeah, so so that's good, and I appreciate that. Um, It seems, though, that um, the, the thoughts of rest has not carried through I know that uh, days are not specific in the New Testament. You know, one man seems one above another, right. everyone the same. Um, and uh, we look at uh, the way the churches met. Originally, they met, you know, daily, right, not just on, on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this constant, you know, meeting. So the, the idea of rest has kind of, you know, gone by, if you would. Uh, I'm trying to be careful here that we don't, 
link, obviously, Sunday and Saturday, right? Obviously, two completely different concepts. But uh, the rest is important. But I guess one question is, why do you think that that idea has then changed when it was so important to God, both for his people and for the land? And uh, I guess maybe is it because he was, where those were, he was the governor, he was the you know, king of that group as it would now were more kind of spread out. Uh, he was more kind of establishing laws for his people. Kind of shooting it out okay, there. so uh, try to answer that question. It's a, it's, I understand the, the, the issue. So one area where Drew has gone is to say that Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. That is a very common view amongst Christians around the world and has been for 2,000 years, but uh, as dispensational believers in Scripture, we understand that Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath did not change from Saturday to Sunday. It's really nonsensical to say, even think that, because Shabbat comes from the number seven in Hebrew, and so it's the seventh day. Well, Sunday is not the seventh day or a remake of the seventh day. It's the, we could say, the eighth day, or really it's the first day of the week. So we don't mix those two things up, and we know that we're not to be judged, allow ourselves to be judged, or others to judge us on the basis of a Sabbath in Colossians 2.16, it tells us that. Romans chapter 14 tells us about the esteem for one day above another. Uh, Some do that, others treat every day more alike. Uh, Some Christians have made it their practice to have a practical rest on Sunday as well as their worship. I will tell you for myself that Sunday is not very restful. Mm-hmm. So I, it's hard for me as a pastor to say that, you know, well, I rested on the Lord's Day because preaching three or more times sometimes is taxing and mm-hmm. I will try to get a rest in the afternoon. But um, so I couldn't say, well, you know, you all are taking a rest and I'm not. So then my Sabbath is Monday or something like that. <laughs> it doesn't really work cleanly that way. But let me say this as well. The Sabbath for the nation of Israel was more than just a day of rest and a day of remembrance. The keeping of the Sabbath, which was enjoined upon them, was a sign. It was the sign of them being Israelites. It's not a sign for us to be Israelites to keep the Sabbath. Um, So just like they had circumcision as a sign that you belong to what? The Abrahamic covenant. They had the, uh, the rainbow as a sign of the Noahic covenant, and they had the Sabbath as a sign of the Mosaic covenant. So that was a specific sign for that covenant. And you see that in various other places. I, in fact, I can't remember the verse address right now. Forgive me for that. But there is a verse that talks about the sign idea of the Sabbath, and I have to dig that up for you. It's on a blog entry that I did some time ago, I think. And uh, so uh, some of you guys on the computer can look that up. But um, I will say this also, that I have, early on in my Christian ministry, I didn't really pay attention to this question at all. Part of that being that I personally have a high capacity for work. And uh, that's also called workaholism, okay? But... Uh, that's in part, we have to recognize that that's partly due to upbringing and Western culture. We do not know how to rest, some of us, because we have been given example and taught that we always need to be busy about something. Um, so, and that's no uh, credit, that's a flaw in a way, and it's a flaw that I've had to work against. Um, but the principle that God gives in the Sabbath instruction of a day of rest out of seven is an important principle because as I've learned by just raw experience, uh, humans as, as workaholic as they may be simply cannot work effectively seven days a week, uh, 52 weeks out of the year. And uh, it's not wise to try to do so. It's not as productive to try to do so. And uh, it's just frustrating and uh, even slows progress. You need to have rest. So the principle that even God observed by working, resting, and the people of Israel observed by working, resting, and the structure of the week that God has given us, six and one, 
uh, indicates to me that the principle is important. So we take not the law of the Sabbath, but the principle of the Sabbath, and we use it to say we do need to have an appropriate rest. Now, for me, that can't occur on Sunday in the hours of services, but it can occur other times during the week. And I may take uh, some time just to unwind and relax and do other things on Monday or a couple of evenings a week or something like that with our family. Um, so I think I'll stop there and say follow-up to that. I think I'm good. I was, okay. just, I was just more curious about the, the resting portion. So. Yes, okay, the resting portion. And yes, Thurman, you have some input for us. Okay. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. That the work principle is um, suggestive of working towards something that Christ has already given us rest in. Yes. Yes, so uh, Thurman is alluding to the idea that Christ is our rest, that the Old Testament was written for our learning, so we take applications from it, principles, as I've suggested here, and the New Testament notion of rest from works, trying to achieve righteous standing before God. Paul had to learn that, didn't he? He said, I, I, was, I was blameless in the law. I had, I had everything. I was working my way up the ladder, so to speak, and realized all that stuff was worthless. It wasn't going to count for anything for me. I would also add to what Thurman has suggested in that I think your understanding is influenced by the book of Hebrews, where there is yet a rest for the people of God, and, and uh, the Bible uses this rest. I mean, the, the, the rest that God gave to the nation of Israel was a divinely procured rest. I mean, ten plagues later, they come marching out of Egypt. Otherwise, they would have still been in slavery, right? So they were redeemed from Israel. They were loosed from bondage. But let's be clear, what was the bondage from which they were loosed? Egyptian slavery. But a lot of people look at that and they incorrectly then make a parallel between that and salvation and they get all confused because the reality is not everybody that came out of Egypt was spiritually saved. In fact, a lot of them were not. Very few were. There was still there a remnant. There was a mixed multitude of people who were idolaters in that camp. But yet God had redeemed them physically. And that becomes a paradigm for spiritual redemption. That is releasing us from the bondage of sin internally and externally like we talked about this morning and giving us that rest from that, really that blasting labor that sin puts a person into. It's a, it's a blasted condition because, you, you know, you're, you're subject to fear of death and no confidence in your eternal state and all of these things, and yet God has given us a rest from that in Christ. 
And so it's very instructive to see uh, or think about a parallel between the physical redemption of Israel and the spiritual redemption of God's people today and uh, draw some parallels, some lines between them, if you will, and think, think about those. So that is a good point that Thurman has raised. We'll call that Thurman Nudix. <laughs> you got to hear that. He said, we're going to call that Thurman Nudix. That got a rise out of Thurman. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Maybe. Theological stand-up? Is that, is that a thing? I don't know. Yes, sir, Ben. I do. I can have one more question, I think, at least. Okay. Okay, so Ben's question is about the Sabbath. He's reflecting on the gospel presentation method that is used by Ray Comfort. And that method basically is that we don't want to only present information about Christ, but we want to engage the conscience of the person to whom we're witnessing. And that, I think, is a very important idea and a very good principle. You want to kind of skip past some of the intellectualized arguments and go right to the heart of the matter and ask, are you a sinner? Have you stolen, committed adultery, you know, and so on and so forth? Use the name of God in vain. And you'll hear him over and over in some of his videos ask these questions. But I, haven't, I have not heard him ask the question, have you broken the Sabbath? Have you? He doesn't ask that question because he cannot ask that question. Theologically, it's invalid to ask that question because really what Ray Comfort is doing is, although he says, I use the Ten Commandments, what he's doing is he's using the nine of those commandments that are still applicable today by principle and repetition in the New Testament. So one way we know that, if, uh, that a command or a prohibition is still active today is by the fact that it's repeated in the New Testament from the Old. But if it's not repeated in the New Testament, or it's explicitly like the Sabbath set aside, then we can't use that. So he's, he's really not using the Ten Commandments per se, although everybody kind of just uses that term loosely, because we're not under the Ten Commandments. But we are still under all the instructions of the moral law of God, which are repeated in the New Testament. Don't lie, uh, you know, and steal, and commit adultery, and as the Lord elevated that in he didn't really elevate it, but he elevated it, re-elevated it in the minds of the listeners. Look, that didn't just mean the act. That meant the, the lust, the desire for the act as well. And so you can go through and find New Testament passages that deal with all of those, idolatry and blasphemy and that sort of thing, and ask those questions of your, of your uh, evangelistic target. And so I do not take the principle... Uh, from the Sabbath and say, you know, have you violated a day of rest in seven? And if so, then, you know, you're deserving of eternal death. Because I don't believe that I can say that. I can't say it of myself. I haven't, I haven't kept Sabbath ever. Now, many times on Saturdays, I will take some time to rest, and it's very nice because I'm preparing for the Lord's Day on Sunday. But that is not a conviction that I have. If I was called by my uh, father and he has some uh, work that has to be done on Saturday, the hay has to get up, then we have to go and, you know, get the oxen out of the ditch that it's fallen into. It's just, that's how it is. Somebody who, like our sister Stacy, is a nurse, can't just say, well, I, you know, I can't work on Saturday or Sunday because, you know, I mean, people depend on her life-giving care, life-saving care for them. And so, uh, I would not, you know, ask somebody, have you violated the Sabbath myself? 
the, the, I would take the more general principle of if God has told you, asked you to do something or prohibited you from doing something and you have done the opposite, in the case of the Old Testament saint, that would include the Sabbath. But in the New Testament saint, it includes all, or New Testament aged person, it includes all kinds of other things. And so whatever God told them, you know, you make your specific sacrifices in this way. If you don't do it that way, you're in sin. And so God did give specific instructions. <clears throat> I wouldn't lay upon the modern person, however, the need to obey the sign that was given to Israel of the Mosaic Covenant when that covenant has been broken and replaced by, uh, in effect, the New Covenant principles. So uh, that's why you won't hear Ray Comfort, I think, using that uh, that rubric. He'll use all the other ones to the Ten Commandments, very wisely so, but not that one. And he is kind of skipping past answering the question that we're answering right now because that's not a really concern to somebody who's lost and going to hell. They need to get saved first. Then they will have an, a chance to understand what we have just said. But there are even many, many Christians today who don't understand what I've just said and they rail against me for saying that. They want to have a Sabbath. Seventh-day Adventists demand to worship on Saturday. Hebrew Roots Movement demand to worship on Saturday. And um, what I'm saying is the demand to do that is sinful and heretical. But the preference to do that, you go ahead. Just don't tell me that I, can't, I shouldn't worship on Sunday because our conviction is that we worship on the first day of the week that has been marked for the resurrection of Christ. And that grace of allowing that, instead of demanding somebody hold to your position, is a part of the gracious revelation of salvation in this age. It's not a legal basis. Remember what we said earlier today of salvation. You're not saying you must worship on Saturday or you're in deep sin. That's what, that's what Seventh-day Adventists and Hebrew Roots Movement people are saying. And then when I say, you can't demand that, then they say, well, you're telling us, you know, you're being hypocritical because you're telling us we can't and, and we're just doing what you're doing to us. I'm saying, no, what I'm saying is you can't demand that of other believers. You may have that preference all you want. Enjoy worship on the Sabbath day on, as you see the Sabbath. But I understand and I'm very confident that they're going to find out that that was not quite tuned up in total correctness when they get a better understanding of the scriptures. So, long answer to Ben's, to Ben's question. Anything else pressing before we go? All right, let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the time that we've been able to spend thinking about the doctrine of interpersonal forgiveness and the doctrine of salvation, which overcomes all sin, even heinous sin or awful memories of things done. And I pray that some of these dear men and women, soldiers who have seen and done the most horrendous uh, things that a human can see or do, that you will give them peace in their hearts, many of them, by faith in Christ. And Lord, on this question of the Sabbath, we know it's a divisive issue. I pray that we will have our own view and be fully convinced in our own minds and worship you in accordance with what we understand Scripture to teach us and others may do the same as they see fit. But Lord, we don't demand the other folks to worship on Sunday. We kind of wish they would, but it's not something we can demand because we understand what Romans 14 teaches us. And we leave that in your hands because they are your servants one way or the other. And we are your servants and you are our judge. Not that uh, we judge each other, but that you are in that place solely and alone. So Lord, thank you for this time when we can look into scripture and get some clarity on these matters. And uh, thank you, Lord, for the rest that you promised the people of God that we do not need to chase after good works. We do not need to hope or, or somehow pray that we'll make it. Instead, we pray in faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and can have utter confidence that in Him we have everlasting life. He will never cast us out if we come to Him in believing that He's died and rose again from the dead. 
We thank you for this great truth. May you bless your people now tonight as each one goes their way, as they turn off their screens, their computers, and go perhaps have dinner or retire for the evening. We pray that you'd fill each one, each believer, with your spirit. And may we follow you in these coming days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I commend you to the Lord and the word of his grace. May he watch over you and uh, enjoy a little fellowship uh, together before you depart from one another. These are strengthening and encouraging times we have together, and I'm glad that you're here to uh, mutually encourage one another. Amen. Good to see you gentlemen here in the front rows of the church. Good to see you guys. Amen. Good night.